I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at First, first listen. listen. This season... We're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Hey, it's Alan Sachs. I'm warning you. Don't imitate actions or attitudes you hear in this show. Listen to discretion advised. On almost every episode of New Wave Theater to almost every band, Peter Ivers asked the same question. What's the meaning of life when your heart is broken? What's the meaning of life, Madeline? What's the meaning of life, Levi? Don, what's the meaning of life for uh, New Wavers in Los Angeles? It was an obnoxious thing to ask, and it pissed the bands off. They didn't like it. They didn't like, they would, it was like their mother asking him what the meaning of life was. The band might taunt him, pick on him. They had never met anybody like Peter and didn't like it. They wanted to throw the microphone down and say, fuck you at the end. But Peter never stopped. He just kept asking. Wait, what's the meaning of life? Hey, I don't know the meaning of life. You tell me. What do you mean by life? What do you mean by me? Most TV show hosts try to charm their guests, but Peter didn't seem to care. As a result, Peter made a lot of enemies among the bands in the scene. A lot of them showed just extreme hate. I said to the police, you're going to have to look at every New Wave theater <laughs> and see how the bands react to what he's saying to them to see who might have a motive, because I can't pick one. Even though they all performed on it, a lot of punk bands hated New Wave Theater, and by extension, Peter Ivers. They thought it was embarrassing, a cringy attempt to rip off a music culture he didn't even participate in. How did this guy, who was clearly not a punk, end up hosting a TV show all about punk? The first part of the story you already know. By 1980, Peter was on a real downer. He had flunked out of two record deals, he was growing apart from his girlfriend Lucy Fisher, and he was mixed up in a Hollywood party scene that would later claim the life of his friend, Doug Kenny. But elsewhere in town, there was a guy who, on the surface, seemed a lot like Peter, 
an outsider who was also looking for a break in a place notorious for chewing people up and spitting them out. His name was David Jove. And in the spring of 1980, the lives of Peter Ivers and David Jove were about to intersect with dramatic consequences for both of them. And it was all thanks to punk rock. That's where the next part of our story begins. Today, a brief history of L.A. punk and how two dudes in the right place at the right time saw a chance to ride the punk rock wave to success. I'm Penelope Spheris, and this is Peter and the Acid King. Punk came to L.A. a little later than New York and London. But no matter where it exploded into existence, punk always appealed to the rejects. Normal people back then were listening to disco, Barry Manilow, and crap like that. But if you were an angry teenager, if you were someone like Nicole Panter, you needed music that was more pissed off and aggressive. I had to hitchhike to Los Angeles at 13 to see a rock and roll show. Nicole was from Palm Springs, and she would just come here to escape. My parents often were so distracted with each other that nobody noticed that the girl that they didn't like wasn't there. I eventually ran off. Nicole found punk through its flashier cousin, glam rock. When hippies started, I was a little too young to, like, run off and join that. And I kind of didn't feel that exactly because I grew up in this violent household. So I knew that love and peace was a lie. What glam had was it it had sexual ambiguity that was appealing. Glam was a rebellion. Look at the New York Dolls. They were boys who dressed like boys with the accoutrement of female stuff midriff tops and lipstick. And so that was something that had never really been seen before. Even though they were a glam band from the other side of the country, the dolls come up all the time when you talk to L.A. punks. Music journalist Stephanie Mendez thinks she knows why. The New York Dolls came during this very perfect time where the old bands, the old rock and roll bands were fizzling out. The scene in general was fizzing out. And then suddenly here came the New York Dolls. They had their own crazy rock and roll sound that ended up influencing the bands to come. People saw the New York Dolls dressed in platforms and women's clothing, and they were wild on stage. They were flamboyant and they were fun and they made really cool rock and roll music. The New York Dolls were a band that bridged the gap between the excesses of 70s glam and what came next, punk rock. Where glam was flamboyant and theatrical, punk was ragged and aggressive. It spoke to kids like Nicole Panter, who felt forgotten and pushed aside. No happy child ever became a punk. Yeah, that's the understatement of the century. Punk rock inherently is hardcore. It's aggressive. It's fast-paced drum beats. It's rock and roll bass, but it has a different edge from, like, a regular rock and roll band. 
No band epitomized the sound and the attitude of early L.A. punk more than The Germs. They got together in 1976. The Germs are fast, they're loud, they're raw, they're gritty. They're singing about sex and drugs and, like, nihilism. When you listen to Blondie and you listen to The Germs, those are two very different sounds. Blondie's pop, happy, new wave, like, melodic music, it's very pop-based. And Blondie's not singing about doing speed. The Germs' frontman was Darby Crash, whose real name was Jan Paul Beam. He embodied the pure chaos of the scene back then. Here's Stephanie Mendez again. Darby Crash had this cult of followers, and it just kicked off this brand new scene in L.A. So that happens around 76, 77. And at first, you know, they start to play like traditional venues like the Orpheum, the Whiskey, the Starwood. In L.A., the bands were often destructive, volatile, hard and fast. Some performers, like Darby and the Germs, seemed to almost self-destruct while you were watching them perform. If a train wreck is a brilliant performance, then he was a brilliant performer. That's Nicole Panter again. She managed the germs. He was one of those people who didn't really have an off switch when it came to drugs or alcohol. It was just whatever someone put in his hand would go into his mouth. And so by the time he hit the stage, he was often fucked up. We did these performances that were... You kind of watched him and went, is he going to overdose while he's up there on stage? Because he is so fucked up. I filmed the germs for my movie, The Decline of Western Civilization. And in one of the scenes, you can see Darby in his kitchen. He asked me to bring over breakfast because he had a bad hangover. Why do you get so loaded to perform? That way I don't feel myself getting hurt. I mean, it's scary out there. No, it's real scary, like, because when we play, we're right down there in the audience, and there's lots of creeps out there. And there's lots of people that have grudges against us now, too. And so if I can get loaded, I'll be able to do it. For those of you who have never seen the film, you see Darby strutting the stage, black Sharpie lines all over his face, jumping from speaker to speaker. He's begging everybody in the crowd for a beer. Somebody give me a beer. Find me a fucking beer. Darby went to London. And when he came back, it was the first time I ever saw a mohawk. Anyway, there was a point where the germs couldn't play at any of the clubs. They were banned from the clubs on the Strip. I think it was as a result of some terrible show that happened at the Starwood. They're playing these venues, and they're really trashing the places. They're destroying venues. So what happens is DIY emerges. Do it yourself, that ethos of, like, creating our own spaces because these venues won't let us play. So, hey, why don't we make our own spaces to play? And that really happens in 1977 with The Mask. So Brendan Mullen, he gets a hold of this basement underneath the Pussycat Theater right in the middle of Hollywood. And eventually it becomes a DIY space full of graffiti and it's people bringing their own alcohol, their own drugs. It's like a really, really grimy place where these bands start to kind of congregate and play shows there. In The Mask, you had, to walk, you had to go into an alley, walk down these skinny little stairs into a basement, and it was broken bottles everywhere, so you had to be careful you didn't cut your feet up. And then there was a lot of puke around, 
And then there were different little rooms where who knows what was going on, but that was the cool place to be was the mask. Bands like the Germs, the Bags, the Weirdos, they played there, like all of these iconic first wave bands that really helped birth punk rock in L.A. The first wave of L.A. punk only lasted three years. I documented one of those years, from 1979 to 1980. 1979 was another big year for punk rock. In 1979, Germs record their debut album, G.I., and that was produced by Joan Jett. The album was incredible. Today, when people talk about punk rock, when they talk about what is the album that really made like L.A. punk rock big or that put L.A. on the map, and people will say Germs, G.I., but that was really the most powerful, the most iconic album to come out. When you listen to their album, G.I., Germs Incognito, all of the songs are fast. Darby's like screaming and warbling, you know, like he's nonsensical sometimes, but that's the nature of punk. It's meant to be nonsensical. It's aggressive and it's loud. Looking back, it's kind of the perfect album for that time period in L.A. But those times were about to come to an end. The mask shut down in 79. Nicole Panter quit the germs in March 1980. She was 24 years old. Darby Crash overdosed in December 1980. He was 22. For a brief period of time, there were DIY venues everywhere. Cool late-night hangouts sprung up all over L.A. One of those places was the Zero Zero Club. The Zero wasn't a music venue. It was an after-hours private club. It was run by this man about town named John Pogna. Here's a clip of John talking at the Zero. You can barely hear him because people are yelling and screaming in the background. Yeah, that was the Zero. What year? A year here. Of what? When, when did that start? It started in... When I threw up, motherfucker. August of 80. Now, this place started about a year ago. This is the only avant-garde gallery run by Republicans. It was disgusting in there. There were beer-covered floors and these funky, super-dirty couches. Truly gross. At the Zero, the bar was usually a shaky, makeshift, plywood piece of crap that looked like a lemonade stand. Here's Iris Berry, the cutest punk chick around, and a bartender at the Zero. She's talking to Alan Sachs, who you can hear in the background of this interview. That was the best job I've ever had. Iris's shift didn't start until one in the morning. She'd play a show, go see a show, go to a house party, and then afterwards, like everyone else, Iris would head to the Zero, although she was working. I'd go in at one in the morning, I'd come out at like four or five with like about four dollars in tips, because you couldn't get booze anywhere else. We said it was booze. It was uh, old Milwaukee, and, and we had a, a box of vodka or a bottle of plain wrap vodka and a bottle of plain wrap whiskey. Fact is, we were also toasted that it didn't matter what we drank, as long as it got you a little more drunker. And one night, his dude, with, he's six foot three or four. He's got dyed black hair and real blue eyes cool-looking dude. He walks up to me and he goes, do you want to go up on the roof and sit down? 
And I said, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm." So I go up on the roof with John James and we sort of fall in love up on the roof at the Zero. He was the guy that's a bass player in the Joneses. And if you look at Motley Crue back in the day and even now, look at Tommy Lee. That is John James. John um, was the one that created that look and Nicky stole it for the band, my opinion. Yeah, I'd be walking down the street with John James and then people would yell out, Motley Crue, Motley Crue. We, um, we were together for like six years. And then I couldn't dig the heroin habit anymore. So I had to say goodbye. And I felt really bad because, man, I dream about him all the time. John James, he was cool. Shit went down at the zero. Everything from romance, drug deals. It was a Lonely Hearts Club with barf on the floor. One time, the cops swooped in and busted the place. And seemingly, everybody was there, including Alan Sachs and Peter Ivers. And the cops run up the steps. They have, I don't know how many patrol cars outside. And they run in, guns out. Pretty scary. And they throw us all up against the wall, hands on the wall, with the gun in the the squat position, with the guns out. Now, that's pretty scary, because they could make a mistake. And I'm standing next to Peter on one side, and I feel Peter's leg shaking. You know, like really, you know, going like like I'm doing now, you know. But, I mean, he he made him nervous. And that made me nervous that he was getting nervous. And then the cops lay everybody down on the floor. And as they're doing that, there are little jugs being thrown out, you know, little bindles of blow and joints and whatnot is is flying onto the floor. Nobody wanted to be holding any drugs when, when that was going on. And so the cops lay everybody down, they walk around, they walk over us, um, and that was it, you know? It was kind of fun get you something to talk about the next day. Despite the raid, the Zero didn't get shut down. It just kept raging night after night after that. On YouTube, you can find this two-hour film <laughs> that's just rolling footage of the Zero. To call it a documentary might be a stretch because there's no narrative there. It's mostly footage of people just hanging out, ambiance. Admission was five bucks, and Peter Ivers was actually one of the only people who ever paid to get in. Here's a clip of John Pogner talking about Peter from that crappy documentary. Did you know who Peter Ivers was? Yes, he was a wonderful guy. He was the first club member to actually buy a membership card at the Zero. Peter Ivers. And you know why? Because he supported the arts. Do you have a lie? But not everyone was as willing to pay that entrance fee as Peter was. Here's Iris Berry again. There was this one spot where people would sneak in. They'd, like, hoist themselves up this pole, and it got you onto the roof and into a window and into another window and into the zero. So they painted the pole red. And he got (laughs) in, and he had this red streak. You know, he was just covered in red paint. It was, like, busted. So, you know, you might end up with uh, red paint smeared all over you, or you might end up sipping an old Milwaukee next to David Lee Roth in the back room, or you might fall in love on the roof if you're lucky. 
But that much fun never lasts too long. As the era of the Zero and the Mask faded into oblivion, like so much beer on the floor, a shinier option arose. Club Lingerie. It was booked by the same guy who started The Mask. First of all, the name itself was a sexy name. That's Alan Sachs again. He's the one who's been looking for Peter's killer all these years. So lingerie had like a lot of beautiful women. It was a party and it was, it was very um, welcoming. And it was the club lingerie where all the bands came and played. I liked the party of it. I loved going out to start the evening at the earliest 10 o'clock at night. I would be standing next to Bruce Springsteen. You know, he'd be watching, you know, Jack Mack and the Heart Attack. Club Lingerie and The Mask were very, very different just because The Mask was such a shithole. And Club Lingerie was sort of redone and, and nice inside. Usually had a bunch of full-dress Harleys outside. You walk in, get past the door dude, and on the left side is a long bar, totally packed, three people deep trying to get drinks. Sometimes I'd walk in and see Peter, and there'd be this crowd around him listening to him talk. He was a real reconnoisseur. On any given night at Club Lingerie on Sunset, you might see legends of the L.A. punk scene perform, like Fear, The Circle Jerks, Black Flag, The Plugs, X, 45 Grave, The Gun Club, The Go-Go's, El Duce and The Mentors, Top Jimmy and The Rhythm Pigs, The Gears, The Screamers, The Weirdos, The Blasters, and many others. But the lingerie didn't just have punk bands. They booked performance artists like Johanna Went. I went around and went to all the clubs and tried to get people to get to book me. And I, you know, got musicians and started playing music with them and singing on the stage and throwing my stuff around. And my show was aggressive and it was, you know, fast paced. It was messy. It was loud. It was something that they were happy to embrace. And I never felt like it made me a punk rocker. I felt like I was lucky to be able to perform in those venues in the punk scene. And a couple of times, the lingerie hosted Peter's rock opera called Vitamin Pink Fantasy Review. Here's Violet Ramis. She's Harold and Anne's daughter. Vitamin Pink um, was like a musical review, kind of. There was maybe a loose storyline, um, but it was sort of a collection of songs um, with amazing visuals and costumes. So I, I was very young at the time. Uh, Vitamin Pink happened, I believe, in 1982. So I was five years old. It just felt like the coolest thing. The costume fittings, the rehearsals, like lights and big sounds and like lots of drama and intensity. I mean, performance art was probably not on a lot of children's radar at the time, but it was on mine. So I just felt like, yes, I'm finally, I'm in it. One of Vitamin Pink's songs was called My Dissonant Mother's Been Thrown Out of Russia. It was kind of like, my dismother been thrown rush, my dismother been thrown rush. And there was harmonies and it was like, you know, just like sort of ramped up to this 
climactic moment. And maybe it was at that time in the show when I sort of was born through this plastic tunnel, um, which you sort of get um, in any toy store now. I crawled through. I was wearing a white silk turban with a feather in it. I don't know what exactly the the character was, um, but some kind of baby goddess. (laughs) Club lingerie was an interesting evolution for the punk scene in L.A. It was legit. Brendan welcomed punks with open arms when many other venues had told them to take a hike. Peter Ivers was there many nights. His theatrical shenanigans rubbed up against the punk's eat-shit attitude. Maybe that's what made him wonder... What's the meaning of life? The punk scene changed me. These bands, this culture, it was so remarkable. I felt compelled to try to capture it before it all faded away. That's why I made The Decline. After I made the movie, other people started to show up at clubs with video cameras, too. At one point, this new guy hit the scene. He was a scrawny, skitzy, dark-haired dude. He was short, but intense eyes, like a null or some, some sort of gargoyle. They were like shark eyes that would flash. When he looked deeply into, into me with his eyes, it scared the hell out of me. He was like looking at your brain through your eyes. It was incredibly intense. His name was David Jove. And for whatever reason, he takes it upon himself to start videotaping the bands at the clubs. Apparently, he got the idea after talking to Ed Oakes, the former music editor of Billboard. Well, I just said, you know, you you know, why don't you need something to do? Why don't you get a camera and shoot all these groups, go to the clubs and shoot footage of them and then show them what you've shot and work with them. And then uh, about two weeks later, I got a call and he said, Ed, I bought a camera. What should I do with it? And that's when I told him, go to the clubs and shoot. And then he told me he did that. He got thrown out of a couple of clubs when he tried to do that. And then he said, um, you know, it's really not working. I have footage, but I don't know what to do with it. I said, well, then start a television show. Put it on TV. Edit it. He said, what should I call it? I said, call it New Wave Theater. David Jove had the footage and he had his big idea. And the only other thing he needed was to find a host. That's next time on Peter and the Acid King. Peter and the Acid King is based on interviews recorded and researched by Alan Sachs. It's produced by Imagine Audio, Alan Sachs Productions, and Awfully Nice for iHeartMedia. I'm your host, Penelope Spheris. The series is written by Caitlin Fontana. Peter and the Acid King is produced by Amber Von Schassen. The senior producer is Caitlin Fontana. And the supervising producer is John Asante. Our project manager is Katie Hodges. Our executive producers are Ron Howard, Brian Grazer, Cara Welker, Nathan Clokey, Alan Sachs, Jesse Burton, and Katie Hodges. The associate producers are Laura Schwartz, 
Dylan Kainrich, and Chris Statue. Co-producer on behalf of Shout Studios, Bob Emmer. Sound design and mix by Evan Arnett. Fact-checking by Katherine Barner. Original music composed by Alloy Tracks. Music clearances by Barbara Hall. Voiceover recording by Voice Tracks West. Show artwork by Michael Deere. Special thanks to Annette Van Duren. Thank you for listening. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts the black effect presents family therapy and i'm your host elliot connie Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your hosts of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. That's right.